You're listening to Argy's Poetry Pickle Jar. Hello and welcome to Argy's Poetry Pickle Jar, the only place where we pickle the poems we know you'll love. Yes, each week we get another amazing poet into the place to talk about a poem they love with all their hearts. And by the end of the 15 minutes, we hope you'll come on a journey with us and love that poem too. Today uh, and this series, we've had poets from all across the world and I'm so excited to have this particular poet in here today. Uh, Her accolades are probably too many to mention. Her work is moving and vast and spanning many years, shifting and changing over those years, which is something I really appreciate. In 2004, she was named as one of Miss Lexia's top 10 women poets of the decade, as well as being chosen as Poetry Book Society's next generation poets. And that was way back in 2004. And now later in 2010, Berry and the Wren was published um, actually two years later in 2012. And it was Poetry Book Society recommendation shortlisted for the T.S. Eliot Prize and Times Literary Supplement Book of the Year. Uh, more recently, uh, she was part of a collaboration book, which is a really interesting work um, called And You, Helen, a book and animated poem made with the artist Charlotte Hodes or Hodes Hodes, I think, about the wife and widow of the poet Edward Thomas. She's a professor of poetry at the University of Liverpool and is the editor of the new Pavilion Poetry series, home to so many amazing uh, writers. Um, it is, of course, Darren Reese jones Hi, Darren. How are you doing? Hello. It was lovely to see you there. Um, have you been working a lot with different people for the uh, University Press? How's it been going with Pavilion Poetry? Oh, it is definitely the best bit of my job. Um, so we publish three books a year. So there's a sort of, uh, there's a nice seasonal cycle to it. So the manuscripts usually come to me in about May or June. And um, and then we work on them and uh, the students get them in the autumn. And then we, we publish every April. So it's, it's, it's that nice time frame. Oh, what? So the students, what do you mean the students get them? They get them before? Oh, okay, so we have student interns who work on the books. Oh, I never knew so, that. Yeah, they, they, they work with the press as uh, one of their university modules and they uh, work on marketing and typesetting and very closely with the press. So they work, each each stu- student works with a poet. Wow, um, that's amazing because the big ones, I suppose, Barnu's book, which was like, for me like one of the most influential books especially from an Asian woman like writing that piece was something really profound and actually the typesetting and the way that was set out on the page was that how Barnu had written it did she have it in her mind that that's what she was going to do well it's kind of extraordinary each time I work with a different poet because of course everybody works in a different way but um, Barnu knew what book she wanted to write and then it just happened in, in the kind of magic way that things happen with Banu, sort of extraordinary. Um, so no, it just appeared pretty much as it was. I, I'm just keen, I think, with all of the, the books for them to find their form. Yeah, I love that idea. And then in the finding of the form of other books, how have you find, found writing uh, recently 
with um, a passing pandemic and a looming nuclear war. <laughs> uh, do you find those are difficult uh, climates to write in? And what do your students think as well? Yeah, the writing thing is, uh, it's interesting, isn't it? The, the last book, um, it was kind of poetic autofiction in a way. I was kind of trying to think about how I sat in relation to things happening in the world and documenting things like, you know, when Notre Dame burned down and wanting that to be in there. And so my writing process at the moment is a lot of documentation of what's happening. I, I, I write down, I collect a lot of things that I'm seeing on to trying to think about how poems might fit into this sort of stream of events and the weird time frame that we're living in. And, and that kind of skewing of time, I think poetry is particularly good at handling. And, and I guess it, there's a lot of note making for me now and digesting and wondering. We talked about it with another group where I was talking to them about looking, there. that's that Auden quote where he's like, look, don't look away from something. A poet can't look away. They have to look straight at it and take it in and capture it. I was teaching um, Auden's poem, September 1st, 1939. Do you know that poem when he's oh my sitting, gosh, in, yeah. sitting in the, the dive in 52nd Street? And I was trying to think about how much that is a poem about history, which it is, you know, but also that way in which he rejected that poem completely by the end that, that you know, you're trying to create some kind of stay against the suffering and the, the, the difficulty and, and what you see and how you process it, but that you can't offer that as some kind of simple re reconciliation or answer. And I, I, do, I do really like thinking about that poem because I think it has a lot of questions to ask us now. Which sort of brings us on to the poem that you've brought in. Yeah, okay, so it's um, Louise Glick's poem, The Wild Iris. At the end of my suffering, there was a door. Hear me out. That which you call death, I remember. Overhead, noises, branches of the pine shifting, then nothing. The weak sun flickered over the dry surface. It is terrible to survive as consciousness buried in the dark earth. Then it was over. That which you fear, being a soul and unable to speak, ending abruptly, the stiff earth bending a little, and what I took to be birds darting in low shrubs. You who do not remember passage from the other world, I tell you, I could speak again. Whatever returns from oblivion returns to find a voice. From the center of my life came a great fountain, deep blue, shadows on azure seawater. So wonderful. And actually, such a signature style of Louise Glick. This, like, there's something about there's a few poets that got such a strong signature you can really capture it if you even if you just heard it and you were just walking around you would still know who the poet was mm. um what were some of the reasons you chose this poem oh i i, I kind of um in, in a way i've had this kind of 
poem folded up in my pocket for a long, long time. It's It's been a poem I kind of carried psychically around with me since I first read it back in the early 90s, I guess. And I was curious about whether it would still stand up when we talked about it, because, you know, you, 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 you fall in love with a poem and it speaks to you at a certain time and, and then you change, the poem changes. And I wondered if it would still have that kind of, um, I don't know, emotional credibility or something for me. And yeah, I, I, I think it does. It, it's doing a lot of things that still interest me you know, in terms of what a poem can do. Yes, it's it's incredibly intense and extreme, but also quite simple. But what I love are the shifts and ambiguities and disorienting, disorientations yeah. really that you get within it. I think the uncertainty is something the first time when I uh, read it, I mean, I don't think it's the first time actually, because I've seen it before, but it's the ambiguities and the uncertainty of the speaker. And I think that comes yeah, through on that absolutely. second line. Uh, at the end of my suffering, there was a door. And then I love this breakaway, cutaway, which is like, hear me out. Uh, it's almost like the reader was going to leave. Uh, and someone's saying like, oh, no, don't go. Like, hear me out as I tell you this. And also um, the idea of remembering death, the impossibility of that. The first four lines are like such a gambit, really, because they are pulling and pushing in so many different directions. Yeah, they are, aren't they? I mean, who is this you? We're not hired. It's, it's, I think it's really interesting the way it's framed. You know, we, we get this poem, it's called The Wild Iris. But are we looking at the iris? Is the iris speaking? And I think all of those things are happening at, at once, aren't they? And that sense of this sort of weird amnesia of impossibility, you know, that the things that you're being asked to do aren't quite possible in the poem. What what I love is the shiftingness of of the poem, the way it's moving all the time. So you know you can you get these words like terrible, you know, and and I, and I think of that word terrible, and it makes me think of yeah, it's a terrible beauty is born, and it's it's like it's quite a hard word to put in a poem, but it's also got that sense of the earth written into it and this idea that you know you might be buried alive and that suffocation but actually if this is a bulb about to sprout out of the earth then that then that kind of terribleness is all about holding and nurture and things being about to happen and so you're not quite sure what you're meant to feel about that you know and, and 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 terrible again you know you think about Rilke and um beauty and th there's just so many kind of buried gestures towards other poems in in this poem too and and I think uh the other thing that um I, I thought when I was reading it back is the way in which voice is really important in the poem and and what voice might mean and I think that's something that I'm interested in thinking about lyric anyway is you know who do we speak as who do we speak for what is the role of the lyric voice how social can that that voice be how solipsistic might it risk being the sense too that the poem moves between material things very material things that the earth and also the voice 
somewhere in between this sort of um, transcendent space that's sort of divine or, or, or not of anything at all. And, and I like the idea of this negotiation between the kind of material and the transcendent that the poem seems to bridge and, and, and sort of snake its way through, really. So that even by the end of the poem, from the center of my life came a great fountain, deep blue shadows on azure seawater. You know, when we step back and we look at the title and we, we kind of realize that that's the iris, that's the, 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 the bulb flowering, it's also not because it's also shadow and it's also seawater. And, and it's also this idea of the life of this speaking thing. And, you know, well, which is it? It's all of them. And I think that's that's what gives me the kind of um, kind of thrill there. And uh, somebody was asking me recently, I was talking about, there's a poet HD who I read and was very important to me, a modernist poet. And she does this thing with images and blurred images and kind of ways in which images can sort of transform feelings through their materiality. Mm -hmm. And this this seemed to be another example of somebody doing that to really good effect. Now, talk me through that again. So images transforming into what do you mean by materiality? Well, if you have a thing in a poem, how do you think about that thing? So like the imagists were very interested in objects mm -hmm. and, and it's very, very, very visual poetry It's something again, that I think is at the core of what I'm trying to think about is like representation through words and through pictures. So Im imagism is very pictural. Mm -hmm. Those things can change so that, for example, you can describe the sea as being like pointed pines and then you get that strange hallucinogenic feel of the sea being both furry and tree-like and sea-like and, and the fact that you're having to hold those images in your head alongside the language. I think, I think that's what's kind of happening here as well, in that you've got to sit alongside the image of the iris that you have to kind of grow in your own head with this image of a fountain and seawater as well. And you've, you've got to hold them in a kind of complex mix yeah, because I've been thinking a lot about associations and um, uh, that game like uh, with Timmy Mallet, Mallet's Mallet, where he'd move between two people, right? And and sometimes like I've read Chen Chen or even in this poem, like many poets, like it's the coming, the metaphor, like Ella Bass was saying, like the metaphor is the most intimate thing because it's bringing two things which are completely different and it's making them come together. And mm. the act of writing a poem is like, these two things coming together and there is there is so much closeness in those two things two things that we thought could never come together like the pine cones and the water or whatever um a poet's job is to bring those two things together the impossible things are brought together and thus you're showing the world the universality or the connection between different objects or different people i, I think what i like about this poem still is that you might expect the poet's voice to be the mediator of those metaphors, the thing that holds it together. But actually this poem kind of keep, you keep, it's, it's like one of those dreams where you keep slipping off a curb. 
you're not quite sure what kind of center that voice has. And so in terms of a kind of lyric authority and a kind of lyric control, it's, it's having to keep negotiating itself. Yeah, and that's I, so that's, interesting, yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting because if you want a kind of, if you want a kind of lyric that is not stuck in a kind of dyadic, are you mediate through this kind of monolithic sense of perspective, then it opens up different different areas of perception, different ways of thinking things through that I think, yeah, I think this poem does that. I, mean, I, I was worried that it would, that I would read it again and in some ways it would be brittle or a bit sort of um, precious but I don't. I don't think it is at all. I think it. I think it's such a. Uh, it's it's a kind of metamorphosis poem. Mm. Thanks, Darren, for coming into the pickle jar. Really, really appreciate it. What a conversation! It was really lovely to talk to you, RG. The Wild Iris by Louise Glick. At the end of my suffering, there was a door. Hear me out, that which you call death, I remember. Overheard noises, branches of the pine shifting, and nothing. The weak sun flickered over the dry surface. It is terrible to survive as consciousness buried in the dark earth. Then it was over. That which you fear being a soul and unable to speak, ending abruptly the stiff earth bending a little, and what I took to be birds darting in low shrubs. You who do not remember passage from the other world, I tell you I could speak again. Whatever returns from oblivion returns to find a voice. From the centre of my life came a great fountain, Deep blue shadows on azure seawater.